morning, everyone. My name is Steve Wallen. I'm the campus pastor at our Noblesville campus. And my wife, Benita, and I have been part of a care community for a family in our church for, I don't know, since I think since I got started. And I just want to encourage you uh, what Sarah said. If you can't be a foster parent now, there's still a way you can get involved. I just want to encourage you to stay after the service, head over to that house right there in the front of our parking lot. And uh, we've got lunch for you. We'll watch your kids if you need it. I just want you to find out more about Hope and Olive. Uh, as I said, my name's Steve, and uh, so this is Carmel, huh? <laughs> this is what it's like. If you guys don't know, I was here for about eight years before I went over to Noblesville, so it's great to be back. It's my first time back in three months, and it's good to be back with you. Thank you. Um, I say that, of course, for cheap applause, but I also want to say uh, thank hi to those of you watching online. I haven't seen you guys in a while. A special shout-out to my friends Bud and Linda Wall, who are watching up in Tipton. Uh, Justin and Jessa up in Fort Wayne, if you're watching, thanks so much. Uh, it's great that you guys joined us here. And I want you all to think about a time as we start this morning when you have suffered in your life. How many of you have suffered in your life? Raise your hand. If you're, if you're at home, raise your hand. Okay. So most of us know what that's like. Think back to that time when you were suffering in life. And I hope for you, for your sake, that you have to think back a long time. But I know for some of you, you're not going to think back very long at all. Maybe even you're thinking about something that's going on right now. Maybe you've had to walk through the loss of someone you love. Uh, maybe for you, it's been a job loss, and now the bills are coming, and now you're wondering what's, what happens next. Uh, maybe it's watching your kids go a different direction than you had hoped for. Like you, you thought you raised them right, you thought you had them on the right path, and you see them uh, walking away from the Lord or walking away from your family. Or, or maybe it's an illness or injury that's taken away all those freedoms you used to enjoy. Or for you, it could be the wreckage of a divorce or a broken relationship and all the realities that come with that. You know, whatever has happened or whatever is happening, there's a good chance that you've asked the question that most of us ask when we get in a situation where we're suffering. This is the question, why? Why is this happening? Why me? Why now? Why would a good God allow bad things to happen to good people? You know, on Saturday night, September 15th, uh, the church service I attended was standing room only. Now, normally that wasn't the case. We liked Saturday nights because, one, it gave us our Sundays free. But, two, we liked Saturday nights because they weren't usually very crowded. But on this night, the weekend after 9-11, uh, it seemed everyone in Hamilton County wanted to be in that church service. Now, this was common all over the country on that weekend of, uh, after September 11, 2001, by some estimates, nearly half of the adults in the U.S. attended church that weekend. In New York City, the effect was even more pronounced. Tim Keller, who was at the time the pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in Manhattan, said that his normal 2,800 attendance uh, grew to 5,400 that weekend. But something interesting happened. Before long, people stopped attending church again. Even while the U.S. government was still searching for the masterminds behind the terrorist attacks, even while... Our U.S. armed forces were going to war in Afghanistan and Iraq. Even while security across the country at airports was heightened to levels we'd never seen before, most news outlets by September 2002 reported that church attendance had shrunk back down to about where it was a year before. And many experts believe this happened for one reason. It's because churches were never able to answer the question that was on everyone's mind the weekend after those tragic events. Why? Why did they happen? Because when things go wrong, we all have this natural tendency to run toward God. And that's good, right? That's good. We want to run towards God when things go wrong. But most of us run looking for an explanation. Why God? Why me? Why now? Why this? Don't you love me? Don't you, don't you want me to be happy? 
But the lens through which we view our pain and suffering will determine whether that God-focused attention ends up in hope or in hopelessness. Author C.S. Lewis said it this way. He said, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. And today, the story we're going to look at is all about pain and suffering. If you've been following our planted plan, uh, reading plan, you know, you've probably reached the book of Job this week. Uh, and you're probably reading in the early chapters, but I want to tell you, it would be no good to you to preach the first half of Job. And so we're going to tell the whole story today. So if you've got your Bibles, you might open them up to Job chapter 38. I can tell you what page it's on in my Bible, but that won't do you any good. So you'll just have to find it. Job is probably near the middle of your Bible. Maybe uh, if you get to the middle and you hit Psalms, go a little bit to the left. Uh, Job, and, and I will just, we'll just warn you, if you've never read this before, there are spoilers contained in today's message, but don't let that be an excuse for you to get up and leave or to turn off the computer. Uh, stay with us because I hope that what we share with you will help you as you read through the rest of the story, help you process. So Job is said to be from the land of Uz, uh, which was apparently far from Israel. But even though Job was not a Jew, it said in the book that he uh, feared God and shunned evil. And so the story starts with this meeting in heaven. It's a kind of a, an angelic council. So it's God and some angelic beings. And one of them is known as, in Hebrew as the Satan. We come to know him in scripture as Satan. And God mentions in this meeting his righteous and upright servant named Job. And Satan challenges God that Job is really only upright and righteous because you've blessed him his entire life. That if something bad were to happen to Job, he would immediately renounce God and start going his own way. And so God allows Satan to terrorize Job. Basically, he says, you can do whatever you want to this man except to kill him. And so Satan in one fell swoop destroys Job's property and his livestock and his family. It's a really, really sad way to start a story. And as you can imagine, this causes Job a lot of pain, a lot of suffering. And for us normal folk reading the story, we're kind of like, whoa, back up. Why would God allow that to happen? Why would God do this to Job? I mean, if he's truly righteous and upright, why would God be so passive? You know, where's the leadership, God? Why would you allow this to happen to this man? Because that's our go-to question. Why? We all have this natural desire to make sense out of pain. And that question, why, isn't a bad question. We actually see this response in Jesus as he's hanging on the cross, Jesus who, remember, Jesus is fully God and fully man and in his fully godness and his deity, he knew that he would die for the sins of humanity. Jesus who predicted his own death multiple times as he walked the earth. We see Jesus as he's hanging on the cross and he asks that question. He says, my God, my God, why? Right? Why have you forsaken me? Why have you abandoned me? Because in his humanity, in the middle of unspeakable pain and suffering, he cries out to his father and he asks the same question that we're all prone to ask, why? But the problem with that question is this, is that we ask God why, but our focus is so often on our own lives and our own actions and our own surroundings. So sometimes we ask why, but we say, why God, where did I go wrong? Was this my fault? What could I have done differently? Or more common nowadays is who did this to me? Like whose fault is this? Who do I have to blame for my sorrow? And that's what happens next for Job. Uh, we see this after his 
tragic, these tragic events early in the story, he's visited by three friends. Uh, their names are Eliphaz, Bildad, and Sophar. And these three represent the best of Eastern, ancient Eastern wisdom. Uh, that's who they are. And they come to Job, and the first 30 or so chapters of Job are really this conversation that happens among these four friends. So Eliphaz, Sophar, Bildad are talking to Job, and at first they're kind of sitting with them, but then after that, they start to blame Job for his pain. So Job is crying out to the God, crying out to God, asking why this happens, and these three friends come in, and they start saying, hey, you know, Job, um, you must have done something wrong. Since God is a just God, and he runs the world according to the rules of justice, and something bad happened in your life, there must be some sin in your life that you're not telling us about that caused this to happen. So come on, Job, why don't you just own up to your own sin and get back on the right path with God? Guys, we do this sometimes. We do this as friends. Uh, even those of us, and I'm pointing to myself here, who are problem solvers, uh, we're fixers. When a friend is suffering, we want to get in there with them. And when we get in there with them, when we get down into their pain, sometimes we say, uh, maybe I can help you solve this, right? Maybe here's some things that are going wrong. And that's certainly a time for that. Good friends are ones who will have hard conversations with friends when those hard conversations need to be had. But sometimes... Sometimes our friend is in pain and they just need somebody to sit with them and to be in the suffering with them. And that's kind of what Job needs in this moment. That's kind of the best gift we can give to somebody who's suffering. I remember I had a friend once who was a strong Christian. She grew up in the church. She read her Bible every day. And uh, I kind of lost touch with her for a while. And I heard that she had fallen away from the church, that she had kind of renounced her faith and stopped praying and stopped reading her Bible and I wondered what happened. So I ran into her one day and I asked her, we kind of got to the conversation. And I asked her, what, what happened that caused this? And it turns out that she had had a miscarriage. Um, and when she went to her pastor, she kind of asked this question, uh, pastor, why do you think this happened? And he said, there must be some unconfessed sin in your life that God allowed your baby to die. And it broke my heart. And because of that, she couldn't go back to the church you know, we will almost always be tempted to examine our own pain within the context of our lives alone. And I'm not saying that our choices don't have consequences. Our choices have consequences. Kids, if you're listening out there, our choices have consequences. Teenagers, if you're listening, our choices have consequences. They do. And there are going to be some times when we make, do something and we just, we've made our bed. Now we've got to lie in it. If your parents ever told you that, uh, that's true. But there's something bigger. There's something beyond our control and beyond our power, beyond our choices that won't answer the why question for us. But when we understand it, I think it can give us a perspective on suffering that will lead us to hope instead of to hopelessness. So back to Job, these conversations lead him to cry out to God and demand an answer. He's going to demand that God answer, and boy, does God answer. And so this is where we end up in Job chapter 38. Um, and guys, this is one of my favorite chapters in all of Scripture. It's really incredible. It's really powerful. God shows up, and now Job's probably thinking, oh boy, now I'm going to get the answers that I've been looking for. But instead of answers, what we see is God fires off a series of questions to Job, 64 questions to be exact. He wants to show Job the greatness and the wholeness of his power and his might. So he says things like, Job, where were you when I shaped the earth? And what, what were you doing when I put the constellations together? And while we're at it, where do storms come from? And how do you predict where they are going? 
Can you, have you ever sent lightning somewhere and made it go there? Have you seen the storehouses where I keep the snow and hail? And there's all these questions like that. And there's even some really random, odd questions like, Job, how much do you know about the reproductive habits of goats? That's chapter 39, verse one. Or, or how come ostriches can run so fast, but they can't fly? And they're so dumb. They don't even know where to hide their eggs, 39, 13. And so as you're reading, you might wonder like, what's the point? What is the point of all this? God, why would you spend three chapters just lighting Job up? Well, the point is, I think, to show perspective. God's saying, Job, if you can't even understand the mystery behind these simple things, right, these finite things, you really think you're going to be in a place to understand infinite things? Like, if you can't even get goats and stars, are you going to get why? You see, the assumption that Job and all his friends have, are, they're working from, is that they know enough about the world to analyze and understand God and his justice. And God says, Job, actually, your perspective is severely limited. You don't even understand the simplest things, the created things. If you don't understand the created things, how can you ever hope to understand the creator? And as you're reading this, you start to feel bad for Job. I mean, I'm like, God, I mean, that's a little extra, don't you think? I mean, you're going off on the guy like that? But you'll see he's just getting started. In verse 40, he, he says this. He says, it says, then the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm. Brace yourself like a man. Now, I, w- I just want to stop right there and say this, because so many of us think we would love to hear from God, okay? We would love for God to speak to us. But if God starts to speak to you and says, brace yourself like a man, you better get ready because it's coming, okay? Brace yourself like a man. I will question you. I thought that's what he'd been doing for the last two chapters is asking him questions. And you shall answer me. And then he said, would you discredit my justice? Would you condemn me, God? Would you condemn God to justify yourself? He says, in order to understand infinite justice, you have to have infinite perspective. And Job, you don't. You're not in a place to question me. And then he goes on, verse nine, he says, do you have an arm like God's? Now, remember in the Hebrew, the arm is a symbol of strength, right? So he says, do you have strength like God's? Can your voice thunder like his? Then adorn, if so, then adorn yourself with glory and splendor. Clothe yourself in honor and majesty. Unleash the fury of your wrath, Job. Look at all who are proud and bring them low like I can do, Job. Look at all who are proud and humble them. Crush the wicked where they stand. Bury them all in the dust together. Shroud their faces in the grave, Job, if you can do that. Then I, God, I myself will admit to you that your own right hand can save you. (laughs) God's essentially saying, Job, would you like to run the world for a day? Like, do you understand how every little act of injustice in every instance goes together? Do you really know how many different things are happening in the world at the same time that are all interconnected? Have you ever seen Bruce Almighty? I mean, that's what he's asking Job, right? He said, this is quite a bit more complicated than you think. And Job is floored. Like he has heard from the Lord and even though it wasn't what he was looking for, he's satisfied with the answer. Look at what he says in Job 42. It says, then Job replied to the Lord, I know that you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. You asked, who is this that obscures my plans without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. You said, listen now, and I will speak. I will question you, and you shall answer me. My ears had heard of you, he says, but now my eyes have seen you. 
Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. And I think the key word in this is this word right here. It's the word repent. And Job says, in effect, you got me. Like, you're right. I know nothing. I'm sorry, God, for ever questioning you and your ways of justice. And then the book ends with God restoring double to Job everything that he, everything that he lost. But there's one thing he doesn't get, and we don't get either. We never get the answer we came looking for. Now, Job came to God to find out why this happened in the first place, and God never answers him. And so many times we will go to scripture, we'll go to church, we'll go into prayer, looking for why this thing is happening to me, and we may never get the answer. But what we do get from Job are some really keen insights into the character of God. And so that's what I want to share with you today, that and when we suffer, instead of asking why, we can remember these five truths about God that we can carry with us into the struggle. And so the first one is this. If you take a note, you might want to write these down. The first one is that God's power is supreme. You know, in Job, we see that God has supreme, absolute power over everything, creation, mankind, angels, even Satan. You know, Satan does nothing. I don't know if you noticed this. Satan does nothing except by permission, did you see that? In Job 1, it says this, the Lord said to Satan, very well, then everything he has is in your power, but on the man himself, do not lay a finger. Now, you read that and you go, why? <laughs> like, why on earth would God allow Satan to destroy Job like that? In fact, why would God allow Satan to have any kind of power at all? Why would he be able to have dominion over the earth? In fact, let's go a step further. Why would God even allow Satan to exist at all? The answer is, I don't know. I don't know. And I don't know because this doesn't tell me. And um, this is my guide for life. Scripture is my guide for life. And if this doesn't tell me the answer to a really, really tough question like that, I'm not about to make something up to make myself feel better or to help a friend. You know, I'm going to rely on what scripture tells me. I have hitched my wagon to this star, baby. And if it doesn't tell me, there's nothing I can say. There's nothing I can do. There's nothing I can make up that's going to be a better answer than the answer that is not contained in here that sometime on the other side of, the glory, of glory, I hope to find out. The one thing we do know about Job's suffering is that its ultimate purpose, its ultimate purpose was to bring glory and honor to God. And now that may not sit well with you either because you think, why would God allow an innocent man to suffer to bring glory to himself? Isn't that kind of selfish? Why would God allow me to suffer? Why would God allow my family to suffer? Why would God allow my friends to suffer to build up his own glory? I mean, God is demonstrating glory to the world and to the angels and to Satan through Job's suffering. And that might be really hard for you to live with. But I wanna tell you that you and I and the entire world, we all exist for God's glory. And when you realize that, you will find a joy and satisfaction that you will never find in any created thing. Here's the second truth we can see about God, that God's perspective is complete. You know, in chapter 42, Job reiterates God's question back to him. Here's how it reads in the New Living Translation. He says this, you asked, who is that, this, that questions my wisdom with such ignorance? You know, the scripture tells us that our wisdom is ignorance compared to God's wisdom. So I want you to do a thought experiment with me. 
How much higher is God's power than yours? Okay, even if you don't believe in God, if you're here, if you're joining us online, if you don't believe that there's a God who created the universe, I just want you to do this experiment with me, okay? If there is a God, how much power must he have? Astronomers estimate that the number of stars is more than 3,000 billion trillion. Now, that's three septillion. I said it like that, though, because if you're anything like me, the numbers million, billion, trillion, septillion, they all sound the same. They all tend to blend together. And so 3,000 billion trillion seems like a lot. But to give you some perspective, do you know what you were doing a million seconds ago? A million seconds is about 11 days. Do you know what you were doing a week ago Wednesday? Maybe not. Some of you don't remember what you had for breakfast this morning. Uh, I'll tell you, it's probably donut holes. Um, but you can kind of remember, most of us can kind of remember some things we did last Wednesday, right? We can remember a million seconds ago. Do you remember what you were doing a billion seconds ago? A billion seconds ago was 31 years and eight months ago. Now, some of you, of course, can't remember what you were doing there because there was no you to speak of. You know, you were 31 years ago, there was no you. I remember what I was doing there. I was busy being hot, let me tell you. Um, <laughs> because that's me. I just want to show you uh, how cool I was. Um, that sweater is back in style, by the way, and I have a center part. Look at that. So... Um, Sometime in the late 1900s, right? That's when that was. That's a billion seconds ago, 31 and a half years. How about a trillion seconds ago? Do you remember what you were doing a trillion seconds ago? Well, of course you don't. Don't be ridiculous because a trillion seconds is 31,000 years ago, 29,000 BC. Bernie Sanders was just a baby then. <laughs> now, I want you to think about this. There are at least 3,000 billion trillion stars, each of them, having the same amount of energy as a trillion atomic bombs every second. And all of these were created in a single moment with a single word from God. Now compare that to my power. I can't get off the couch without getting lightheaded. Right? I mean, in fact, I don't understand why anybody over 40 would ever take drugs when all you have to do is stand up too fast, right? You get the same effect. So if he's way wiser than I am and he's way more powerful than I am, there must be things that God understands that I don't understand and they're outside my perspective, right? It's entirely possible then, wouldn't you agree, that God has beautiful purposes that he is working out in the midst of our suffering that we just can't see yet. And Job gets that. Look at how he responds. He says, I was talking about things I knew nothing about, things far too wonderful for me. In other words, he says, I forgot how limited I was and how great you are, God. I was asking the wrong questions. Again, nothing wrong with why, but we've got to remember the magnitude and the wisdom, the power of the God to whom you're asking. Now, the third thing we see in the book of Job is this, that God's purpose will prevail. His purpose will prevail. I, I think one of the most encouraging things about this story is this truth, that since God's power is supreme, and his perspective is complete, that all of Satan's attacks only further God's purposes. Now, Pastor J.D. Greer puts it this way. He says that all of Satan's attacks on Job produced a book that has provided encouragement to countless believers throughout history. Do you think that's what Satan had planned? And this kind of thing is seen throughout scripture, but probably never more clearly than we see it on Good Friday. If ever there was a moment when it looked like that Satan had won and it was at the cross. But God took the worst day and turned it into the best day. Satan's strategy to defeat Jesus only served to provide salvation for all of mankind. 
You know, Satan's attack only furthered God's purpose. It was carrying out what he promised us in Genesis chapter three. He told Satan at that time, he said, you will strike his heel, but he will crush your head. And that's what happened. And if you love God, he's doing the same kind of thing with your suffering right now. You may not be able to see it just yet. Job certainly couldn't. I mean, his family was gone. His wealth was gone. His livestock, his livelihood was gone. But God's purpose was guaranteed. God's purpose would prevail. Now, it's true. Sometimes God lets us suffer in order to correct us or chastise us. You know, Jerry talked about that with, jo- uh, with uh, Jonah last week. Sometimes he can use our suffering to work out salvation in others. We talked about that when we talked about the story of Joseph a couple months ago. Uh, sometimes he can use our suffering to draw us to himself, to make us love him more. But don't ever believe that your suffering is evidence of God's failure. His purposes are guaranteed. His purpose will prevail. Here's the fourth truth we see in the book of Job, that God's promise is eternal. In Job 19.25, he says that I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end, he will stand on the earth. Now, in the end is a reference to eternity. And many scholars think that Job was the first book written in the Old Testament, the first book of the Bible that we have, which would mean this is the first reference to eternity that was written down in Scripture. And at the end of the book, what we see is that everything is restored to Job double. Uh, That scene is where we're given a glimpse of what eternity will be like, where God restores to us all that we have lost and gives us perfect joy. Psalm 1611 says it this way, in your presence, there is fullness of joy, at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Now, fullness means it can't get any stronger and forevermore means it can't last any longer. And that's the kind of joy that we have in Christ. Our our lives here on earth are described in scripture as a vapor. They're a mist. They, They don't last. Anything that you're building for yourself, it's not gonna last. It's not eternal. Uh, It's going to vanish. Mother Teresa once said that compared to eternity, the worst things on earth are like nothing more than a bad night at a cheap hotel. The apostle Paul said it this way, that we should fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary and what is unseen is eternal. He also said this, he said, for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. And man, if you're the one that's suffering, It doesn't feel light or momentary, does it? But recognizing what's ahead, what's there for you in eternity is the key to coping with suffering in this life. Living with an eternal perspective gives us hope and it gives us determination to keep going. And remember, you don't have to do this alone. You don't have to do this alone because there's one last thing we see in Job's story and it's this, that God's presence is guaranteed. You know, Job never got the answer to why. But the book ends with this phrase. I I just want to read this. I read this last night as I was preparing for this morning and and this just really stood out to me. Job 42 uh, verse 16 says this. After after this, Job lived 140 years and saw four generations of his children. Verse 15 says, then Job died old and satisfied. He died old and satisfied. How, How did he die satisfied if he never got the answer that he was looking for? Well, because he was satisfied with God's presence. And Job 19, 25 again says, I know that my redeemer lives and that in the end he will stand on the earth. And then he goes on. And after my skin has been destroyed, he says, yet in my flesh, I will see God. 
I myself will see him, he says, with my own eyes, I and not another. How excited is he to see the presence of God, how my heart yearns within me, he says. I wonder what Job was thinking about when he wrote that. Because we know it even more than he did. We saw our Redeemer come and stand on the earth with us. Why was he here? Well, he came to take our punishment. He came to take our place so that we would never be separated from God again. Yes, I am wounded sometimes, but he was wounded for my salvation, for my forgiveness, so I could be eternally healed. Yes, I sometimes feel abandoned, but he was abandoned for me so I could be eternally embraced. If ever there was a time when it looked like that God had lost, that God was absent, that he was missing, that he'd lost control, it was on that dark Friday. But it was there in that moment on that hill called Calvary where God was doing his greatest work. Romans 8 says it this way, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Friends, that's what he's doing right now. God is working in the power of resurrection, even in your suffering. You know, your redeemer came to took and stood in your place. He entered your pain for you. He suffered death for you. And he now stands victorious by your side saying, this is not your battle to fight. I have already won. Jesus is that friend that you need that will sit with you in your pain. In his first sermon after 9-11, Tim Keller, that pastor from New York City I mentioned at the beginning, he preached on 1 Thessalonians 4. In that chapter, Paul writes that when we grieve, we should not grieve as those who have hope, have no hope, for we believe that Jesus died and rose again. And he went on to say this. He said, we do not know the reason that God allows evil and suffering to continue, but we know what the reason isn't. We know what the reason can't be. It can't be that he doesn't love us. It can't be that he doesn't care. Why? Because he got involved with his son. Christianity alone tells us that God lost his son in an unjust attack. When you have the presence of Christ in your life, you are free to stop asking the why and start trusting the who. You think you need an explanation, but what you really need is revelation. Revelation of a God who is big enough to work out all this mess for good and loving enough that he promises to do just that. A revelation, not an explanation, is what God gives us. Horatio Spafford was a more recent Job his trouble started with the death of his four-year-old son, and then he lost his business interests and livelihood in the Great Chicago Fire of 1871. And then a planned trip to England in 1873 was scrapped when his financial interests were further hurt by the economic downturn that happened that year. And so he sent his wife and four daughters on ahead to England, uh, saying that he would catch up with them. While the ship was crossing the Atlantic, it collided with another ship and tragically sank, killing his four daughters. His wife, Anna, was rescued, and when she returned to shore, she sent a simple two-word telegram that said, saved alone. Spafford boarded another ship immediately to go meet his grieving wife, and as his ship crossed the Atlantic and passed the places where his four daughters tragically died, he penned the words to this powerful hymn. It goes like this. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, Whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well. It is well with my soul. And that's the message of Job. 
Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we may never understand this side of heaven, why you allow pain and suffering. But I'm thankful for the promises contained in the story of Job about your power and your promise and your purpose and your presence. God, I'm thankful that you are a God who's powerful enough to defeat any suffering in our life. You showed that with an empty tomb. I'm thankful that you're purposeful enough to never waste our tears and our suffering. I'm thankful that your promise is strong enough to tell us that you are going to be with us, that you, your presence will go with us in our suffering. And God, sometimes while we think we need an explanation, we think we'll feel better if we know why this, if I just knew why this was all happening, I'd feel so much better. And God, what you say is, no, no, you just need me to be present with you. You just need to know that I am there. Calm down, my child. I'm here with you. I'm not gonna leave you. I'm not gonna forsake you. God, we thank you that that's the kind of father you are, that you are a good heavenly father who will sit with us in our pain and suffering. Lord, use this today. Use it in our lives. Remind us that even in the midst of the toughest pain and sorrow, that it can still be well with our soul. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.